0: Hey Irish fans, this is Alex Painter here to remind you that if you or your company has screen printing or embroidery needs, look no further than our pals at wcscreens.com. Nationwide shipping? Check. Wholesale pricing? Absolutely. They are indeed the gold standard of the industry and fervent supporters of this show. And of course, you're fighting Irish. So give them a holler at wcscreens.com. And on with the show. We all know that there are so many iconic sites at the University of Notre Dame. I bet if I were to pull 100 Notre Dame fans, I'd hear answers such as the Golden Dome, the Grotto, Notre Dame Stadium, or the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. Well, and of course, there's that one that may be most popular on football Saturdays as well, especially with folks posing for photographs. And that would be the Hesburgh Library with the spectacular, word-of-life mural overlooking the north end zone of the stadium yes of course i am talking about that work of art most commonly referred to as touchdown jesus to celebrate the library's 60th anniversary this year let's dig a little bit more into it as well as the library's epic mural so buckle up those chin straps irish fans this is onward to victory Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. My name is Alex Painter, and this is episode 77 of the most exhaustive, accessible source of Notre Dame football history since 2019. Happy to be here as I always am, and glad you have elected to join me as well for today's offering. And quickly, as I traditionally do, a quick commercial for the previous episode. Number 76, it was the fifth installment of the Notre Dame in the Civil War series, which commemorated not only the sister nurses of Holy Cross who served in Union field hospitals, particularly Mother Angela Gillespie, who was incredible by the way, but also a man and family with close ties to campus who were active participants in the Underground Railroad. If you haven't already, please go forth. Check out the episode, like, subscribe, leave a review. Everything helps, and I am deeply appreciative. And speaking of appreciative, a brief yet heartfelt thank you to the Consensus All-Americans. That is those special individuals who contribute to the show monetarily. These folks have either contributed significantly in the past or are currently donating to the show, and they include Michael Finan of Rutherford, New Jersey, Brad Glazier of Williamsburg, Indiana, Will Fuller of Warren, Ohio, Dr. Jeremy Scarlett of Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, Andy Nickel of South Bend, Indiana, and I'd like to give special thanks to a brand new Consensus All-American, Mr. Mike Johnson from Oak Park, Illinois. And I really appreciate a recent email that Mike sent to me, and I think this pod is very unique in many respects, and, and I am certainly biased in saying that but I think Mike spelled it out really well when he wrote the following to me, uh, that he particularly enjoys the pre-Rockney-era football deep dives when the show has a subject that is not necessarily football-related but ends up tying back to the program or the university at large. He continues the Civil War episodes and Native American Heritage Month episodes were great examples of this the latter of which I particularly liked how you were able to highlight current women's lacrosse and baseball programs as well as football. He also said, I also thought that the Manti Teo episode you did was great. I was surprised at how much you both remembered and were even more impressed when I checked the release date and found that you beat the Netflix documentary by a few months. That was a really nice email. And uh, Mike, I appreciate you uh, notice in the release date on that uh, on that episode about Manti, uh, my co-host Matt Garing and I, we made note of that ourselves, that we had beaten the Netflix documentary by some time. But again, I am eternally grateful for every last one of the Consensus All-Americans, and I am serious, the show would not be able to continue without these folks' generous support. And as always, a very special thank you to WCScreens.com, our banner sponsor for yet another year, another great year, 2023. Now, I don't know about you all, but I do this all the time during the off season. I'll pull out my phone, open my pictures, and just go through all the photographs I have taken over the years while visiting campus. In my previous job, I actually used to visit South Bend probably about three times annually, which was awesome, by the way, and so I'd be able to kind of swing through campus and snap a few pictures here and there. So some are from work-related trips, if you will. Uh, Others are from taking our kids to campus for little summer vacations, which we traditionally do each summer. And then, of course, game days as well. And anyway, no matter how many times I go up to Notre Dame, and perhaps you're like this too. I know probably many of you are like this as well. I tend to take pictures of the same places over and over again. Like, you know, since you're there, you just can't help it. So I pull out my phone and I just take another one. And of course, one of those places that I just take a photo of pretty much any time I'm up there is the Hesburgh Library with the legendary Word of Life mural. So I'll pose a question to you all. Do you remember the first time you saw the Word of Life mural? Or maybe it was introduced to you by its more famous nickname, Touchdown Jesus. How old were you? What do you remember? I can tell you without a shade of doubt that the first time I would have seen the mural was probably sometime in late 1994 or maybe early 1995. And I was on the verge of turning eight years old. And the movie Rudy had been out on video for a few to several months, but My guess is my household, my family growing up, we probably didn't go buy it right away, and my sense is actually I believe we might have rented it first. But at any rate, my mom or dad eventually purchased a copy for our house. And as a kid, I really can't even begin to comprehend how many times I watched that thing, or we watched that thing, which, speaking of anniversaries, that movie's 30th anniversary is a little bit later this year, so you can absolutely expect a Rudy offering uh, here later in 2023, but that is undoubtedly where I saw the mural for the first time, along with so many other campus landmarks. Also, this was probably around the same time that I first saw the Wake Up The Echoes, a history of Notre Dame football documentary. While I believe it was produced in the early 1980s, I can remember seeing it as a kid, I think, on NBC on Saturday mornings, naturally, uh, in the fall is my guess, though I can't place it for sure. But if you've seen it, it's narrated by John Facenda, who did so many of those NFL films, and It's absolutely incredible. And if you're curious, like, what the hell are you talking about? It's actually on YouTube in its entirety as well. So if you haven't watched it, it is absolutely magical. And if you didn't realize it's on YouTube and you're aware of it, hey, go rewatch it. But kind of off on a tangent here. uh, But those two things in particular would have represented my first exposure to Touchdown Jesus or the Word of Life mural. And I'll never forget the first time I saw it in person and that was the fall of 2013. My son, Grayson, who is currently one of the biggest nine-year-old Irish fans I know, was an infant at that time. and uh, I'll never forget it. The sight of it was just absolutely breathtaking. And I think even those who aren't necessarily Notre Dame fans also feel that way. And I'm almost actually positive of this fact. I always kind of take mental note on football Saturdays when I'm fortunate enough to make it up there for a game it's a lot of the opposing team's fans who are oftentimes taking their photo in front of the mural. And I've always thought that that was really neat that some other folks can maybe experience something that I myself very well might take for granted from time to time, being a somewhat frequent visitor to South Bend. But either way, you know, I hope we vanquish every opponent that comes to Notre Dame Stadium. But I do think It is, of course, just one of those things that everybody should have the chance to experience. So what's the story here? How did this overt symbol of Notre Dame's Catholic legacy that many are convinced has allowed for divine intervention from time to time on the football field, which the mural's watchful eye always looks upon, come to be? Well, without further ado, I give you the first installment of an ongoing mini-series called The Iconic Sites of Notre Dame, which hopefully, as it continues to get fleshed out, might even serve as a bit of a tour of campus by way of a podcast. (laughs) So for part one, we are going to cover Touchdown Jesus, or the Word of Life mural, right after this. The Hesburgh Library was opened in September of 1963. So again, 60 years ago this year. It was actually initially named the Memorial Library and wouldn't actually be changed to the Hesburgh Library until 1987, which was the very year that Father Ted Hesburgh wrapped up his tenure as Notre Dame president. However, for ease, I'll refer to the building as the Hesburgh Library to avoid any confusion. So before the Hesburg Library was built, the main library, which was called Le Library, was housed in the building which is today called Bond Hall. For the inquiring mind, Bond Hall today sits about a stone's throw from St. Mary's Lake and is adjacent to the Log Chapel and the oldest building on campus, which is Old College. So it sits right near the grotto and basilica and etc. So, oh yeah, and the band actually plays their famous Concert on the Steps at Bond Hall on Football Saturdays. Perhaps some of you are familiar with that. Anyway, Lemonier Library, again now Bond Hall, was built in 1917 to be the campus library. And believe it or not, before Lemonier was built, the library was housed on the third floor of the main building. So at some point, yes, the university was going to need its own standalone space for a library. And that's exactly what happened in 1917 when Lemonier was built. However, by the time the venerable Father Hesburgh took over presidency in the early 1950s, 1952 to be exact, he saw the library as a shortcoming for the campus's academic life and academic affairs. So one of his early charges as president was to increase the academic profile of the university and to more comprehensively turn what was once a small, scrappy college for mostly immigrants and the children of immigrants to a bona fide, internationally renowned research university. I guess one way of putting it would be to get it to the scholastic reputation that it enjoys today. Anyway, he wanted a new library. Father Ted unveiled and subsequently directed a massive fundraising campaign for capital improvements throughout the late 1950s and early 1960s, which was called the Program for the Future. I like it, very aptly stated. But Father Ted wanted to raise over $66 million to help with new residence halls, institutional gift aid which are scholarship monies as well as professional development for his faculty and staff and this was no small campaign folks 66 million dollars is a ton of money now but think of it this way if a million dollars today is approximately 10.1 million dollars in 1958 they were looking at a fundraising target of over 660 million dollars in today's money considering historical inflation. That is immense. So, yeah, I mean, professional development, good. Uh, residence halls, very good. And scholarship money's awesome, awesome. But what Father Hesburgh really wanted was, you guessed it, a new library. He once told a story that was reprinted in an article from the theirishrover.net that went like this, quote, When I became president... It was ridiculous that we only had a 25,000 volume library. So they asked me, do you want to double the library? And I said, no. They asked me, do you want to build the library for a million volumes? And I said, no. So they asked me what I wanted. And I said 6 million volumes. They told me you're out of your tree. But I said, let me tell you something. We will have over, six million volumes in the library, and we'll have so much that we'll have to look for outside storage. That's what made this a great university, a great library, and a great Catholic library, end quote. So the library was indeed built, and just for posterity here, the library's main casualty was actually Cartier Field, which had served as the football team's home stadium for the first three decades or so of the 1900s, and the baseball and track and field facility for even longer than that. A lot of fantastic football was played at the rough approximation where the Hesburg Library stands today. But it was officially dedicated on September 18th, 1963. So 60 years ago, again, this coming fall. And not for nothing, the official 60th anniversary of the library is slotted between the Central Michigan and the Ohio State game this year. So while I know Irish fans will be a a bit preoccupied that week and the campus will of course be preparing to host an absolute onslaught of folks for the Irish Buckeye game that coming weekend, there's also a very important anniversary sandwiched in there as well. But the library itself was a boon to campus immediately as you might have guessed. I mean, just look at the size difference between Bond Hall, which is about 70,000 square feet, and the Hesburgh Library, which is over 429,000 square feet. This was a triumph of epic proportions for Father Hesburgh, a real crown jewel on campus. And in fact, as of its last count, the library currently has... 3,400,000 3,400,000 books, 3 million units of microfilm, 34,000 electronic titles, pardon me, and nearly 30,000 audiovisual items. So just over that 6 million mark that Father Hesburgh was shooting for, and that's, we will say, quite impressive. In fact, it's among the largest libraries on a college campus in the entire nation. But Father Hesburgh thought the grand building was missing something so let's head back to the story that he told quote when we built this building and looked at it it didn't have much character so I asked Millard sheets an artist in California what can you do to dress up the front of our library End quote dress up the front of our library that's great but to be fair though the library itself was an incredible new asset to campus Some had actually likened it from an appearance standpoint anyway to an old grain silo, which stop and pause for a minute. Can you imagine that library without the mural on front? It would look a bit strange, but when father Hesburgh had visited Mexico city in the mid 1950s, he was inspired by the murals on the outside of the library at the national autonomous university of Mexico. So that had served as his inspiration. And he probably went in to the construction of the new library, having a pretty good sense of what he wanted the front to look like. And again, he knew just the guy who could pull off the style he wanted to back up a little bit. That was the aforementioned Millard sheets, who was an artist, a teacher, and an architectural designer based in California. And he specialized in these incredibly unique mosaic-style murals that the Word of Life would eventually become. And it's actually pretty interesting. Though we refer to the Word of Life as a mural, as I have done several times since this episode started, it's also the textbook definition of what is a mosaic. Uh, But I've also read where it's neither technically a mural nor a mosaic, and despite having the last name of Painter, I have little acumen in the arts. So I guess I'll think of it as a mosaic mural. I don't know. Might have to ask a friend of the show, Kathleen Kiefer, what, uh, what she thinks. But Father Ted had procured the funding for the mural from a certain Mr. and Mrs. Howard Phelan of Winnetka, Illinois. For you map lovers, Winnetka's on the north side of Chicago. Very, very nice suburb of Chicago. But believe it or not, the project itself only cost $200,000. And I'll explain why that's pretty astonishing, even for that time, here in a minute. So though Father Ted gave Sheets the creative licensure to do his work, he of course did want to make sure that some things were included including Christ the Teacher, appropriate since the work would be at an institution of higher learning, and also St. Thomas Aquinas, the Apostles, and a few other famous Christian thinkers and philosophers throughout history. When it comes to Scripture, the inspiration of the Word of Life is based on the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1-5, through I hate to literally get preachy, but here you go, just in case you're curious. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing came to be. What came to be through Him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Sheets went about the grand design of the word of life. And I'm using grand almost charitably here. The mural itself measures 134 feet high and 68 feet wide. Not only that, all told, there were over 300 panels featuring 89 different types of stones from 16 different countries. There were also several thousand pieces of granite, all different shades of color, used to create the image. But perhaps the most important part of the mural, uh, at least for Father Hesburgh anyway, was what he thought was the centerpiece of the whole work. He later shared, quote, just to draw out the face of Christ took a sheet of paper almost the size of my office. The face of Christ is the most important part of the mural. It's spectacular. And Mr. Sheets used 90 shades of granite, three different approaches, raw, polished, and a little bit polished, end quote. Sheets ended up giving a really awesome interview in a May 1964 issue of the student newspaper, The Scholastic. One student reporter asked what he thought was the most particular part of the project. Sheets answered that, quote, The extensive use of granite is probably the most unusual feature of the mural. To my knowledge, no other large mural has been done for the exterior of a building in solid granite. I'll read that one more time. To my knowledge, no other large mural has been done for the exterior of a building in solid granite. It has been executed in granite to make it permanent, to withstand the heat and cold found in that part of the country. The theme, of course, was suggested by the Notre Dame administration. What they asked me to do was to suggest in a great processional the idea of a never-ending line of great scholars, thinkers, and teachers, saints that represented the best that man had recorded and which are found represented in a library. The thought was that the various periods that are suggesting in the theme have unfolded in the continuous process of one generation giving to the next. I put Christ at the top with the disciples to suggest that he is the great teacher. And that is really the thematic idea." So if you were to look at the mural today, you do kind of see that it is almost linear and there is a steady stream of figures that run and start from Christ at the top and run to the bottom of the mural. That same student reporter actually also grabbed a few quotes from the donor, Howard Phelan. When the students asked if he was impressed with the mural, he replied, quote, I have seen a color reproduction and I am very much impressed by it. I think it will be something of lasting value. There is nothing comparable to it anywhere in the country. Father Hesburgh actually told me that the mural is visible at night from an airplane 50 miles away." End quote. And again, I would just like to throw in that $200,000 does seem pretty inexpensive even for the time for a work this grand and this monumental. But anyways, the Word of Life mural was commemorated in May of 1964, which was less than eight months after the library itself was finished. So obviously, this was a project that moved very expediently. So when did the work garner the nickname of Touchdown Jesus? The first mention I could find in the school or local newspaper was from 1968. So about four years after the work, Was unveiled. And something that I always asked myself, or at least when I got old enough to form the thought, was given that the fact that the work does indeed overlook the football stadium, a venerated institution in the university's history, my question was was there any, even just the slightest bit of intentionality in having Christ's arms raised as if he were a referee signaling for a touchdown? I hate to be sacrileged, but that's what I've thought, and perhaps you've had this thought yourself. But interestingly enough, talk about vindication. Marcia Stevenson, who serves as a librarian in the Notre Dame Art, Architecture, and Media Department, also suspects that the positioning of Christ's hands and arms may not have been completely accidental. This is per the Irish Rover once again here, quote, one thing I can tell you from my many hours of patient research in the archives is that no place could I find any documentation confirming that the arms raised gesture was a deliberate touchdown reference by Millard Sheets. Okay. But however, wouldn't the more natural gesture, would have been for Christ to have his arms down. If Sheets didn't do this deliberately, maybe he did it subconsciously. Quote. Regardless, <laughs> this piece of campus lore, history, and architecture has remained, as donor Howard Phelan anticipated in incredibly humble terms, something of lasting value. So as you snap your photos of touchdown Jesus in the future, always be mindful of, despite the magnificent and near breathtaking presence the work has, that the origins of the word of life center around a unified vision of one tenacious priest turned college president in Father Ted Hesburgh and one innovative artist in Millard Sheets. Who collaborated to create something that will forever be timeless? And I'll be right back with Show Rap. All right, I hope you all enjoyed that first installment of the new mini series that. I am calling the iconic sites of Notre Dame, that one about the Word of Life mural, better known as Touchdown Jesus. And like I said here a little bit earlier, maybe I'll try to bang out a couple more of these things here before the season starts. That way, by the time we all start trekking up to campus for football games this fall, maybe we're armed with some new knowledge about some of those very, very iconic and memorable spots on Notre Dame's campus that we all love to visit. And again, when we're in town and we see them, we... Can't help but take our phones out and snap a few pictures, which is, I suppose, the genesis of this episode. So what's coming down the pike? Well, lots, actually. I kind of deferred a couple episode ideas to make room for this one, but spring training is in the air. I am a huge baseball fan, just in case you weren't otherwise aware. So I will be doing in honor of spring training and the Uh, Upcoming opening day of MLB and of course college baseball is already underway. I'm going to do a Notre Dame baseball episode and I've got some really cool angles I look forward to taking. There were a lot of really memorable people who intersected with Notre Dame baseball and i can't wait to share a little bit more about them so that's definitely one that's coming up probably next and i mentioned a boots on the ground account of the clemson game uh, that i was so fortunate to be able to take in that's also coming as well as other installments of this iconic sights of notre dame miniseries as well as of course a spring game recap so, I don't know how many of you are planning on going to the spring game here coming in April, but if you are, shoot me an email, onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to, especially if you're a listener, a continuous listener of the show, I'd love to meet up with you and shake your hand. The spring game's a great, great opportunity to meet up with some folks because it's not quite as congested as a football Saturday in the fall, but uh, nonetheless, it's a, it's a, hey, it's Notre Dame football. So, I'm not going to complain. And I went for the first time last year and took my entire family. And boy, what a great experience! Family friendly experience, even that that was so again a post spring game recap episode is coming so we're going to have a very very busy next two months so make sure that you are subscribed however it is that you follow the podcast make sure you're liked and subscribed that way you're being alerted to all the latest offerings i'd like to thank once again the consensus all americans whose monetary donations keep the train on the tracks and I kind of watch it every single day and I can positively say that we are reaching new people every single day and people are enjoying episodes every single day of the year. So thank you all very much uh, for listening, for supporting. And if you're among the Consensus All-Americans, thank you for donating. And of course, thank you to our pals at WCScreens.com for once again taking the mantle as the banner sponsor for yet another great year of onward to victory so i am going to wrap this thing up this has been onward to victory a notre dame football podcast and in kindness i'm your host alex painter and as always go
1: irish